Awesome. Today's guest I'm really excited about is my friend Reed Bryant. He is ridiculously smart, kind, and authentic. Fun fact, he was the first person that I ever hired where I didn't have a specific role open for. So it sounds ridiculous and probably people are like, what the hell is that? But because he was so technically smart, he was driven and grounded, I was able to convince the company that this was the right move. And I made a lot of mistakes over my career, but I'm positive that this is one of the smarter decisions I made uh, in my previous career. And just a little bit of background on Reed uh, from a professional standpoint. He graduated from UNC with business administration background. He worked in real estate finance types of roles for seven years after undergrad. Then he went back to NC State. Well, he went to NC State to the Institute for Advanced Analytics, which is built quite a reputation, uh, especially in, in the master's programs for analytics in the country. And some of his friends joked that he had to go back to NC State to get a degree that was worth, worth something useful. <laughs> he worked at two smaller digital experience consulting firms for six years, with most of those experiences being focused around building and leading teams in a VP of analytics type role. And currently he is at Red Hat as the director of marketing analytics and a little personal background. He is a big UNC basketball fan. Don't, don't put that against him. And then he is married to his perfect woman and proud dad to beautiful two little kids that I, I see often on Instagram. So Reed, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and really excited because again, hopefully for listeners on this, there'll be somebody or multiple people whose career could possibly change because of the advice you're going to be sharing today. So thanks again and you know, excited to kick things off. Absolutely. Well, thanks now, she for having me. Thanks for, I guess, seeing the the potential in me way back in 2013, 2014, when we had some of those initial conversations. I see that you left off one of the most poignant moments in that hiring process, which was that final interview that you gave me on uh, walking on a treadmill, which was, I guess, the test to see if I could <laughs> chew gum at the same time. You had on a probably, you know, some type of athletic shoes and here I was in a, in a pair of cold hands. <laughs> We can get it to the other side. I, yeah. I appreciate and humbled by the opportunity. It seemed like an interesting trick on each person that would that would come in to interview just as a interesting test. You know, for me it was walking on a treadmill. For others, it was seeing if they could tolerate or stomach some interesting choices of music in the office. So everybody got their own unique test. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I forgot about that one. All right. So diving into our topics here. Over your career, how many people have you managed? And this includes direct reports and their teams over your career. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, so this is my third role. My, my role at Red Hat is my third role out of grad school. Each company I've had the opportunity to, to either directly manage or oversee managers of about, you know, 12 to, to 15 in each different role. So that, I guess that brings the total to, to roughly 40 over over the past seven years or so. 
Yep. And which gives you a lot of great insight into being able to observe a, a ton of different people throughout their uh, journey and their careers. So that's great. All right. Uh, I'm going to ask you just these key points for each of the various career stages from entry level all the way through to uh, more manager director levels. And so we're going to f- start with the first one. In your, in your opinion, what characteristic defined the exceptional players versus the not so exceptional when it comes to the entry level part of someone's career stage? So we're looking at you know, just graduated college or this is their first big professional role. Or, and so we're looking at like between one to three years. In your opinion, what was the most important characteristic that stood out to you for exceptional players? The interesting thing is, I, I think over our four years of working together, we had uh, many, many conversations that centered around this, ultimately getting back to is talent born or or is it made? And I, I came across an in- interesting perspective recently, which really, really resonated with me. It's, it's a guy named David Epstein, I, I believe was his name, is the author of a book called Range. And he had a point that early in in an individual's career, you should focus on breadth of training rather than depth of training. Because early specialization suffers from a, a couple of things. One being marginalization in that individuals usually, even if you have a head start, that, that head start is not lasting. It's not durable. Others usually catch up. And that lasting success truly requires a type of thinking that doesn't derive itself or doesn't fall back on specific prior experiences. And I think this is especially poignant when um, both you and the world around you are, are changing so fast. Early specialization doesn't tend to reward people in what he called these wicked learning environments where context was changing very quickly. That broad that breadth of training really would set you up for success in those type of wicked learning environments. And there's also the, the possibility for a lot of people early on your career, that, that one to three year mark that, you know, simply this is, this is not your career. This is a step or a trajectory to finding that career. But there's a, there's a chance that that early specialization may be specialization in the wrong thing. So if you're focusing on breadth, in my opinion, you'll end up um, in a better place years down the road. You might not realize that life is usually only understood in reverse, but Mm. something that's resonated with me lately uh, anyways. Yeah, that's a great point. How do you encourage people who are are super eager to dive into their, you know, this is their first time on in their role and, and whatever, maybe it might be entry level digital analytics, let's say. And they start getting into the tools and they're just like, I want to move ahead as quick as possible in my career. And so I just need to specialize and dive in and craft this skill set in this niche. How do you, how, how would you go about encouraging someone like that to talk or think through like what you just talked about? Yeah, I think that, you know, you never want to discourage those players that do want to dive in and become experts because there is a very realistic chance that they've put enough thought and due diligence into understanding that this is their career and then the, uh, of choice. And that is something that's worth 
worthwhile specializing in. So I think there, you know, there's opportunity for those prescriptive conversations, but there's, I think there's also an opportunity to emphasize the ability or, or the notion, I guess I should say that a team doesn't rise or fall on the shoulders of, of one person. And so you don't have to be um, the sole expert. So give yourself the freedom to acknowledge that and, and realize you have a team around you that can supply expertise as you're building your own expertise. And I think the other thing is, is just give yourself some freedom to fail at new things. If you are set or deterministic in your thought of becoming the, the expert in that, realize that that's not going to be an easy path. And, and, and yeah, and just give yourself the, the I, I guess, just give yourself the freedom to fail in those moments. All right. So thanks, thanks for your, your, your advice on the entry level uh, career stage. And so if we move on to the, what I would call the mid career, where you're looking at four to five years, four to six years into your professional career, what is, what's that most important characteristic that you have seen that defined exceptional players? Yeah. So one thing that I've been able to, to put together that's at least been helpful for me in terms of how I, I think about the stage of, the, of, of a career is this notion of value over replacement. I really only played one year of fantasy football in my life and was really, really poor at it. But I did derive this notion, which I guess is prevalent in the fantasy football world, of value over replacement. And it's kind of defined by, in fantasy football, the value that that player A has over an average player, and and you know that's the value that person brings to the organization. And I thought it was an interesting concept as I was uh, contemplating how that interlaces with the professional notion of what we think about without the name value of replacement, but kind of how we relate to our peers and how we choose to grow our career. And so with this notion of of value replacement, I think you should think about how you relate to your peers in the workplace. And of course, stay grounded by your goals in your career. Just because you're better at um, X than someone else doesn't mean that's that's what you should pursue if it doesn't align with your goals. But I do think it's important to recognize your value of replacement relative to the, the peers. For example, you may be super technically adept and you want to sustain stay in a technical track as you advance. That's your, your highest value over replacement. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw people every year, both graduate students and, and people graduating high school that were quite frankly, better programmers than I was better data architects than I could ever be. And so I had to, you know, quickly figure out my strengths and, and play to those to maximize that value over replacement as, as I was calling it. Mm -hmm. And, for me, that was providing context to analytical data science projects as it relates to business value, as well as the, the component, which, which I find super fun and rewarding of hiring, growing, um, and scaling a, a really capable team. Mm -hmm. So I think that that notion of value of replacement and figuring that out in a concrete way when you're mid-career, three to five years in, can be super valuable. Can you just... Walk me through how, if, if someone were listening to this right now in this stage, how, how would you go about going through that exercise of understanding your value of a replacement? Yeah. So in professional settings, we 
all look to our peers to to observe what they're doing and um, with the this notion that it should in some way guide how we're spending our time so if you join an organization you're consistently looking and comparing your skill set to to others in your organization and i think that's where um, some people run into to problems and you can probably the, the beautiful part of, you know, this COVID situation is what you may hear in the background, which is my little kiddos running around. So Great. even if your your peers are, are focused on X, doesn't mean, you know, you should be focused on X. I remember countless times right out of grad school when I was working at Brooks Bell, where I felt like I should be focused on learning Adobe ad hoc as well as others or, or learning Adobe Target as well as others. But in, in doing so, I would have missed the opportunity, The and, and everything's an opportunity cost, right? From a time investment perspective, I would have missed the opportunity to play to my strengths and kind of do that self-exploration to figure out what I feel like I can excel at and how the organization can realize value from that, um, regardless of um, what it seems like your your peers are, are doing in the organization. Everybody yeah. will have a different value of a replacement based on their, their gifts and their goals. And so I think we have to be super intentional on how we um, invest our time to build to our strengths. Yeah. I like, I like your point too, of, you know, you, I think it's important to assess where you excel and differentiate amongst your peers, but then also how does it add value to the goal of the organization? Because sometimes you could go through that exercise and dive into some sort of, you know, piece that you differentiate yourselves with yourself from, but if that doesn't add tremendous value to the direction or strategy of the overall company that you're in, then that value piece is, might not be as high. Yeah, no question about that. I think I've always liked to construct a little mental model of kind of two overlapping rectangles of sorts, and hopefully they overlap in the scenario that you're talking to. I mean, you have your goals and your strengths, but you also have the company's needs. And, you know, one without the other is not very helpful. And when you when you overlap them and you find out where your strengths overlap the company's needs, that's where you can pull from. That's the area you can pull from to um, kind of guide yourself in that role of what you choose to focus on, the value that you can supply. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Awesome. All right. So if we move on to what I would call the senior level, we're, we're looking at six plus years now. Can you define what the most important characteristic at this stage is? Yeah, I don't know if, if I can define kind of a, a singular most important characteristic, but I mean, one thing that has become acutely obvious for me um, in various roles is this notion of, of paradox of success. And mm. That simply is is what's made you successful in the past in a past role isn't likely to be the exact same thing that will make you successful in your new role when you have larger, different responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And I think many people cling to the, the tools or the things that have made them successful in the past and, and they find comfort in engaging in those things because they're clearly experts and they have an information advantage and that feels good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they should be doing is, is spending time trying to step outside of that familiar territory to acquaint themselves kind of with the new roles and the new responsibilities and, and the new expectations, who their stakeholders are and what they're demanding of, of you in that new role. So 
that's it's the paradox of success is certainly an interesting interesting thought and i think the the last thing is that when you are promoted into that senior level role most promotions are are done with great intention and i think that intention usually speaks to someone's potential rather than the specific performance on a, on, on a given task and i think that's something that you should hold very close as you're developing your your strengths for that new role is is that potential and that faith that you know your manager has has in you and in placing you into that that higher role yeah 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 i completely agree um just curious in your in your perspective how how do you because I, I I do think, especially at this stage, the the people who are able to continue to push themselves beyond their comfort zone and not play safe, but be bold and make those more impactful changes within the organization, are the ones that start to rise over others at this point. Are there things that you can think of or tips on how one would start to go about? entering that journey of going into that more uncomfortable areas that up until this point really didn't exist as much. Yeah, it's, that's a, that is a tough question. I think that anytime you are entering into those, a a new situation like that, number one, you have to realize that uh, you have to give yourself grace. First of all, you're not going to be great at everything. I I heard a a podcast recently that would suggest anytime you're in a new situation like this, you're in over your head. You know, if you're swimming, your your feet can't touch the ground. So it doesn't matter how deep the water is. A lot of people will will say, hey, they'll ask when they're jumping in, how how deep is this? And if it's over your head, it doesn't matter how deep it is. You have to swim. And so in these new kind of challenging situations, you have to realize you're, you're in way over your head. You're going to fail. You have to give yourself grace. You have to give, you have to approach it from a place of vulnerability and acknowledge that there are a number of things that you don't know. You may be able to provide the map or the compass, but you certainly don't know the territory well. And you have to rely on others in the organization to provide that, that context and and help you grow. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for that. And then our final stage, which is what I would call like manager director levels. What, what are your thoughts around that that career stage? Well, I think the the the, the obvious thing with that is, and these are maybe less of of characteristics and, and maybe things to be cognizant of to to avoid. But I think the obvious thing is as you as you grow into those those top roles that you, you become less and less connected to the daily work that's happening on your team. And so your team daily is identifying and solving problems that maybe that probably don't even bubble up to you. You may not even know they exist specifically. And so I think you have to understand and acknowledge that and then come up and create systems and, and, and ways of, of dealing with it. It's really easy to create a culture where, you know, you instruct subordinates to default to a no, instruct them to say a no, because firm boundaries, super easy to communicate, super easy to enforce. But setting up a, a culture 
that is the opposite of that is hard. Setting up a culture where you're empowering a yes is 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 difficult. You have to give the freedom to the employees to use their discernment to get to that yes. And it requires one, hiring well, and two, a, a huge amount of trust and perhaps trust before your employees have kind of proven their abilities to you. But ultimately that empowerment will cause the teams to grow faster, uh, be more motivated. And I think the the last notion with that is if you are setting up that system, if you do want to lean into the system where you're trying to create a culture of yes, is to um, balance the freedom that you're giving each one of your employees with the accountability that that should accompany it. Because freedom without accountability is not not necessarily sustainable. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point. Because our last guest, David Bacon, I think you know him. He, he mentioned also at this, you know, at this like director level, right? Like empowerment was a big, big uh, word for him here. And I totally agree that, yes, you have to give trust and freedom, but you also have to marry that with accountability to, to make it work. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard regardless of where you are in the organization, but I think the higher, the higher you go, the more intentional you have to be and in realizing how your the environment and the culture that you set will, will dictate the outcomes that you receive. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. Okay. All right. Switching gears a little bit, looking ahead, where do you think the upcoming hotspots are in, in digital careers, especially around digital analytics or optimization? Yeah. So I, I think there, there are probably two that come to mind. The, the first one is, you know, the, the role of like a, a data architect or a data engineer. I, I always feel like they're underappreciated by the business at large, but very much appreciated and very valued by both the specific analytics leaders and the, the team in, in the sense that without those two roles, the downstream analyst and data scientist won't have clean data to work with. They won't have the infrastructure to to pull from and write to, and and those roles become really, I guess the the back the upstream work that data engineers and architects do yield huge dividends downstream, and so mm-hmm. I think they're the I think those roles if they if it is fair to say they're underappreciated by the business now I think that will become more and more obvious as teams invest in data science capabilities and kind of hit those roadblocks. The business will start asking questions as, as to why we're not seeing the value. And I think if you um, dig deep in many organizations, you'll it'll point to uh, data quality, data infrastructure, data availability as a root cause. And so I think that's kind of where I guess the future lies in terms of recognition for the data architect, data engineering type roles. Interesting. Huh. Okay. And um uh, a second in, in my mind would be related more to the optimization side. And I think regardless of, you know, if you're talking about optimization on search, email, web, I've always been super impressed with these functional experts that can use a tool in the MarTech stack very well, but also understand the nuances of, of data. So you have these individuals with these I don't know if you would call it maybe niche skill sets in MarTech, whatever the, the tool of their trade is, 
And those skill sets by themselves are valuable, but when you combine them with an understanding of analytics, I think those individuals that have those uh, two combined skill sets are setting themselves up for um, a super bright future. Mm. And do you see these these functional experts as someone who is strong at search email and web or are you talking more specifically just around search with like a strong analytics tie or yeah yeah i do i I was thinking about it from the perspective of perhaps a larger organization where you know you do have separate Mm. uh, email search and web teams i was thinking about the distinct discipline that you're operating in to combine one of those wherever you may sit with with some data competencies. But in smaller organizations, you may not get that luxury and you may be operating across that acquisition, conversion, retention framework. Kudos to you if you can handle all that. <laughs> yeah, that, that is tough. But I mean, I, I think a, the majority you know, of companies out there can't, they don't have the size of a Red Hat to, to be able to have all these different functions. And so a lot of people play across all these different, I guess, channels. And so it, it is tough. All right. Looking back, what do you, what do you feel has been your biggest drivers of your successful career so far? If you had to pinpoint a few, few things that really you, you can say, these are, these are the reasons why you, you feel like you've had such a successful career. Yeah. So I would say there, there's probably two overall. One is discovering opportunities. And I think mm-hmm. there are probably two things that go into discovering opportunities. One is 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 finding someone to work for. And this was certainly true in your case at Brooks Bell that saw how you fit into a need. And, and I think that relates directly to the, the second part of it is once you find that person that that kind of trusts the impact that you can have maybe in something that's not well defined you hinted at that with the notion that you know when you hired me there wasn't this uh, prescriptive job description there but but find a way to uh, complement that trust that someone has placed in you with a space that's largely greenfield right so one of the 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 reasons that I thought Brooks Bell was a great fit from that perspective was there wasn't a ton of data science being exercised in the A-B testing optimization space. So no one was talking about things like false positives and error rates when you're testing multiple variations. No one was you know, explicitly talking about being proficient in MVT test design or analysis. And, and when you bring something new, you're probably going to get noticed. I mean, it comes along with a lot of negatives. The, the quote money ball was... When you, the first one through the wall always gets a little bit, always gets a little bit bloody. So I think you have to find that opportunity, but also expect resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think that the, the second thing that helped me kind of navigate and get where I am is this notion of emotional intelligence. And I think there are a lot of talented people out there that, Unfortunately, unbeknownst to them, leave uh, quite a, a trail of dis- destruction in their wake. They may be successful, but it, it comes at a cost. I don't think anybody has poor intentions. I think 
many people lack awareness on, on the emotional intelligence side of how their actions impact others. And so there's a lot of interesting research. I have the um, great fortune to, to be married to a counselor and she can feed some of the stuff to me, but there's a lot of great research on, on even simple things like brain states and, and what others need from you in any one given interaction based on where they are emotionally. And that can define how you choose to respond in the moment or table that and, and respond when they're at, a, at another brain state and they can be more receptive to, to what you're proposing. So I think that emotional intelligence piece is really tough to quantify and it's tough to tease out in an interview scenario. But I think investing in that certainly will yield dividends um, for you and those around you throughout your career. You mentioned books. Are there, what, what would be one recommendation that someone could, you would give to somebody around how to, how to up your emotional intelligence? Is it books? Is it mentors? Is it, you know, like what, what would be your most important advice here? Yeah, I think there, there are probably a couple of books that come to mind. I mean, certainly Prescriptive practice with a mentor is is always great. Finding someone, if you can't find a mentor, finding someone that you can, you know, model yourself after. But, I mean, some books that would come to mind would be Crucial Conversation, certainly is a classic in that regard. Brene Brown has a ton of books. Her most recent one, Dare to Lead, has, you know, all of her work, Dare to Lead, Daring Greatly. It's um, all built on how we process emotions and respond. And, and so those are two great ones. Um, Carol Dweck mindset is, is also another great one. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay. What are habits you have built over the years that have contributed to your success? So what are things that you've just started to do um, that has become a habit that is some of your driving force behind your success? Yeah. So I, I, I will, I will say I am not great. I'm not a habitual person. I try to, I guess, leave my every day of my life open with enough white space. And so, and sometimes that can come back to, to bite you, but I think like overarching habits, if you want to call them that I've tried to hold fast to, um, that I think have been beneficial is, is, is being open to change. Number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So being an analyst, you have a, a, a most analysts probably have a, a certain idea of what their career and their day should look like. And it was pretty well defined. But when I was on the consulting side, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on the delivery side, working on projects. I was briefly on the sales side, helping push, push new business. You know, I've been an individual contributor. I've been part of um, executive teams trying to make decisions that impact a whole company. Um, and now I'm internal in a B2B space with Red Hat. And so I think, you know, being open to change more crudely, you could say just embrace the opportunity to suck very badly at something new and embrace the relationships that result from, from that process. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote. Embrace the opportunity to suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I certainly, um, I, uh, I embody it because it's, it's tough to be good at, at anything when you're new and I'm no different there. That's right. Okay. Awesome. All right. And one, did you have anything else around that one? The, the habits piece? 
Yeah, maybe maybe briefly, just this idea that you need to surround yourself with people that will challenge you. It's super easy to get caught in your own echo chamber. Really, really easy to do these days when when you log on to social media and every company is using every like that that you issue to guide the content that they show you. And so they're guiding content that they think you will agree with. And over the long term, that's pretty dangerous. I read a quote somewhere recently that said, if you aren't at least a little bit embarrassed by who you were, let's say five to 10 years ago, you're not growing up, growing right. enough. Yeah. And the best way I know to solve for that is engage with those that will gracefully, hopefully agree with you. And so I think just this notion of surrounding yourself with people that challenge you is, is kind of a daily habit, a choice that you can make daily mm-hmm. to help you continue to grow. Yeah, that's a that's a really good one because surrounding yourself with the people that, you know, around people that make you grow in the ways that you want to grow is probably going to influence the just how you behave, how you think more so than anything. And so, so that's a great point. No question. All right. Final question, which I like to ask, what does living abundantly mean to you? Yeah, so I, I remember one book that you recommended that that we read back at Brooks Bell is called The One Thing. And part of that book that resonated with me is that we first have to define kind of a, a life purpose and then understand how work contributes to that. You know, and we, we gotta do it to to live abundantly. And and one thing that I think we can recognize that would, would help um, us all understand how work contributes to this greater purpose is looking at all the things that um, we have to juggle. So work, family, friends, health, you know, if we visualize all of them as balls, most people would say they're all glass. Any of them drop, it breaks. But I think we have to give ourselves enough grace to realize that. And and granted, I'm saying this from a, a place, knowingly saying this from a place of privilege, but we have to understand that the work ball for some is is rubber. And so good organizations will set up contingency plans and put systems in place that if that ball drops, it should bounce back and there should be somebody there to catch it. You can't, no organization should force you to succeed or fail by yourself. And I think if we acknowledge that it puts us in a position to, to have more to life than, than work. Okay. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought the one thing piece back in. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no doubt about that. It's been a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if there was one thing you, you would like to tell someone earlier on in their career that you wish someone had told you, what would that be? So I'll give you, I'll give you two real quick, even though the, the question was specifically one, <laughs> that's occurring in me, right? So I think first, when you're early in your career, you're looking at, at everyone um, and assuming they have information advantage on you. And, and they do on, in a relative way, but I think you, you're better off telling yourself the truth is that no one really concretely knows anything. And I don't mean to be cavalier in, in saying that, but I think one thing that you realize as, as you grow and progress is that the more you 
the more you know, the more you realize you you don't really know. So just be careful of those people that act like they have it all figured out because they're they're usually using that as a defensive mechanism on their and they're on their own. And for the sake of your own sanity, just give yourself the grace to know that no one really has it all figured out. And the second one is, is simple. When you when you're young, you're always trying to push to the next thing and hustle and all that. But you know quite simply just slow down it's like the these <clears throat> excuse me these days are, are are the good days right and and if you're always living your life for tomorrow you're not necessarily putting enough emphasis on enjoying today so just make sure that when you're when you're young and, and you're out hustling you remember to slow down and and enjoy the ride mm-hmm. yep so that's a that's definitely a great point and it's it's so hard to do but I, I think it's it's so important because there's nothing more important than the current moment. Yeah, absolutely. If you're awesome. going to be there, be there. That's right. Yep. All right, Reed. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was, it was awesome catching up as always. And yeah, I, I think you know, just the, the advices and wisdom that you've shared, you know, hopefully for people listening to this and thinking about it, We'll, we'll alter the, the trajectory of their careers. And I'm really excited that you're able to join us and you know, drop some of your awesome knowledge. So thanks again. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for the, the platform and getting the, getting the word out to, to help others. Kudos for that effort. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. And I'm sure we'll catch up soon in the, in, in the near future. All right. Thanks again, Naoshi. All right. Nice.